Welcome to Around the Block at Haas, a Here at Haas podcast focused on all things blockchain around all of Berkeley. We're chatting with Haasies, professors, blockchain, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your executive producer and co-host, Paulina Lee. And I'm your co-host, Paul Brzezik. I'm passionate about blockchain and super excited to introduce those around campus who are innovating in the crypto space. So I'm so excited for today's guest, Mara O'Neill. Mara is a lecturer and distinguished teaching fellow at Haas, who is also a three-time Chite Award winner for excellence in teaching. I have the pleasure of taking her class, New Venture Finance, this spring, and I'm so excited to have her. So welcome to the show, Mora. Thanks, Paulina and Paul. I'm excited to be here with you today. How's your week going so far? It's going fabulously. It's been uh, really interesting to see how the world is emerging out of COVID at the same time. Certainly the biggest conflict we've seen in our lifetime with uh, Ukraine-Russia, various sides of that equation. Definitely. Let's start off with an easy one. I absolutely love interviewing Haas faculty because I think they have the most interesting past to Haas and are almost always doing really interesting and impactful things outside of campus. So you have an impressive resume, a couple MBAs, a PhD. Tell us more about your background and how you got to Haas. I went to UCLA and then finished up at the UW and University of Washington and then started three companies. And I had my kids super young. I met my husband the month before I turned 20. I'm actually still happily married. But what a lot of people did in their 20s, I waited to do in my 40s. And so that was an opportunity where I wanted to go back and get my PhD. And my husband, who has a PhD in math, says, Mara, why in the world would you do that? People only <laughs> do this because they have to. I mean, this is really rough. So I literally Googled programs, and it was the first year of the Berkeley Columbia MBA program. And it said that if you did this program and then you went on to do your PhD at Columbia, you could pass out of the first year PhD program. So I live in Seattle, so I was sort of thinking, oh, okay. And so I applied. I had missed the deadline for the first year, but I got in the second year. And almost everybody said, oh, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? You've started three companies, even though one had been a dot-com boom and bust. So full disclosure. And <laughs> your business plan judge. You know, what I'd encourage people, listeners is, I just knew in my gut. I didn't know why, but I knew that's where I should be. And I'd say it's the best decision I've ever made in my life, or at least one of them, I should say. So I came and I still have long-term relationships with my classmates and it also gave me a time, a space in my life to sort of think about, okay, I'm partway through my career. What do I want? What are my big hopes and dreams? And so it just also gave me a space to think deeply. I love that. And then after you did your PhD, I know you did some work as a chief of staff and then into DC. Tell me a little bit more about that time. So I did my PhD across, I'm sort of invent a lot of stuff. So I did my PhD across three departments, biology and neuroscience, psychology and business. And I discovered how narrow-mindedness happens on our brain and therefore our decision-making. We're really hardwired to be narrow-minded because like, mm. that's how we can do fast and frugal stuff. We know how to get to Haas. We know how to get to the classroom we're in. We don't have to use a lot of cognitive ability. But Silicon Valley is the manifestation of when that marrow mindedness bites us in the behind. 
So it also puts blinders on. So I was looking at why is it that it can be useful and how does it prevent us from being innovative? But I had always had an interest in public policy. I was always involved in that. So I was asked to be chief of staff for a U.S. senator in 2008. And so I went back there saying to my husband, oh, I'll be gone a year or two, but then I'll be back. Five years later, I ended up back. But it was a very consequential time. It was an honor of a lifetime. In the Senate, it was 2008. We had this historic run-up in commodity prices, food crisis, and food insecurity around the world as a result of those prices. Huge increase in oil. And we had people in New England that were in freezing homes. And we later discovered that two of the large investment banks own 25% of all the home heating oil in the Northeast. So we saw the structural changes that were causing these problems. We also were there in the Senate when Secretary Paulson, the Secretary of State, came to the Congress and said, we need a $900 billion bank check in the morning or we won't have a U.S. economy. That was a pretty mm. shocking notion. I mean, those numbers don't seem as big as the numbers this time around, but that was the first really soul-searching about how much intervention and what to use it on. Then I was asked to join President Obama's administration. I went into the Ag Department first as the a chief of staff for an undersecretary and the senior advisor on climate and energy. And then after I wrote his biofuels strategy that got adopted and announced in the Rose Garden, he asked me to become the first chief innovation officer of USAID. USAID deploys about $22 billion as part of our foreign policy. And the idea is the more stable and prosperous and fair and free we can help other countries to be and to really build that capability, the less likely that we'll have failed states, the less likely we'll be in the kind of watch what's happening between the Ukraine and Russia today. I have a question, Professor O'Neill. I understand that during your time as chief of staff under President Obama, you were the first chief innovation officer and senior counselor to the administration. I understand you were doing a lot of work related to mobile money adoption and also the stabilization of oil futures at the time and how that might have played into the current stable coins. So I'd just be really interested to hear your experience in that field. Great question, Paul. So when I was chief of staff, as I said, we banged on the table and said, this is outrageous speculation in the oil markets. And yes, you need futures so that airlines can have stable predictability about prices going for Farmers who are raising pigs know what they'll ultimately sell. It's a really important role that futures play. But when that all of a sudden you have 30 times the amount of synthetic instruments or derivatives on a barrel of oil and that gets changed, speculators can get in there and they can actually raise the price dramatically. I did a cold call to George Soros, and I asked him if he would come headline a Senate hearing on this. And he had written a book in the spring of 2008 about the super bubble about to happen. And in fact, he was clairvoyant about that. So I had done that work. And then, Paul, when I was in the administration, we knew that there were 2 billion people in the world that had mobile phones, but they didn't have a bank account. So we said, wouldn't it be amazing if you could use your mobile phone 
to have your identity on it, to actually transact, to send money. And like you're a farmer and the middleman comes and he tells you the price that it is, you don't have any idea whether that's the price or not, and you can't transfer, but what if you could? We knew that there had been 102 deployments of mobile money globally, and only two of them had succeeded. So we put together a strategy, but what the central bankers were worried about is what are called KYCs or know your customer, because you don't want it to be used to launder money. You don't want it to be a form of terrorist financing. And so we said, we get it. We were all asked when we go overseas or come back into the U.S., do you have $10,000 more? But if I am working in Nairobi and I'm sending $2 back to my family in the village, you probably don't need to know as much about me. And so I was on the ground floor of figuring out how to take this really powerful thing. The other thing is that in Afghanistan, half of the or a third of the police officers and Afghan forces were not on the battlefield or protecting every day. And they were walking miles and miles to bring their cash paychecks home. We also knew that so long as you pay people in cash, it's a huge opportunity for corruption, huge opportunity to have that briefcase full of cash have all sorts of holes on it. And so we knew that if we could help develop a mobile money infrastructure where those military people and police got paid on their paycheck and then they could use it to send money, that with a World Bank study, we knew that we eliminated about 30% of corruption. So fast forward to your question about crypto. People have been trying to figure out, boy, the promise of crypto and blockchain is so enormous. And people, libertarians, say, we don't want any government. We don't want they're in here. The problem is that there's a lot of bad actors around. There's a lot of people that want to rip you and I off with crypto coins that aren't real or stable coins that don't really have any reserve. And so... Almost everybody says some sort of guardrails is actually a good idea. It's sort of like the stock market. You saw the collapse of the stock market in 1929 and 1930 because you could lever up so much and there wasn't any regulations on whether this was really a solid company or whether it was just a scam to raise money. And so at this early phase, it's not so early that we haven't let blockchain and crypto innovate, but it's early enough that we need to put some guardrails. So I believe one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve and the SEC has taken a first hard look at stable coins is, I'm sure your listeners know, but a stable coin is something that's tethered or tied to a fiat currency. So the most traded ones in the world are tied to the US dollar. But the issue is, you and I, all of us, benefit from having a really stable economy, relatively low inflation. I know we're having unprecedented inflation, but we're not having 10,000% inflation as they were having in Venezuela when your currency becomes completely worthless. But when events happen, like this Ukrainian-Russian thing, we're hoping and relying on the central bankers, not just in our country and in other countries, to really stabilize cash flows, to make sure capital is available to businesses who need it, to governments who need it, et cetera. When you have a stable coin, 
That's essentially a synthetic dollar or a synthetic pound or a synthetic yen. And so it's understandable that the regulators are saying, we're going to put the whole world financial system at risk, as well as the U.S., if we aren't careful about these synthetic dollars that are operating as if they are dollars out in the marketplace. So I apologize, Paul, that was probably an incredibly long answer to your question, but at least you can see that it started in understanding the risk and the trauma and the pain and the money it was costing real-life Americans and businesses who were brought to their knees in 2008 because of synthetics, all the way to how do you have the consumer protection, but not so much of it that you kill innovation to today's stable coins. We're really lucky to have somebody that really understands mobile money. A lot of people's first introduction to it is Bitcoin. But as you know, there were many forms of digital money before Bitcoin. There were e-gold, hash cash, bit gold, digi-cash. There were all these other forms that were trying to take off and trying to do what Bitcoin is doing today. And I'm just curious on your perspective, if you had knowledge on those other types of earlier mobile money and why, in your view, the current state of cryptocurrencies is either better or worse, hopefully better. So, Paul, I'd say in addition to all the ones you talked about, in Africa, we had cash in minutes for a mobile phone. And so that became a currency that we traded. So I would want to send money to Paulina, but I couldn't send her money, but I could send her minutes on mobile phone that she could then turn into cash. So yeah, I know about a number of those. I would say, which I think is what you're getting out of your question, why did Bitcoin hit that inflection point? It's sort of what I said is when Steve Jobs came out with the iPod, he didn't teach us how to download. Napster taught us how to download free music off the internet. And he wasn't the first one that had a device. We had MP3 players. But what he did was he just got one or two things more right. He got a mini disk drive in there so we could have a thousand songs in our pocket rather than 12. And he also got a business model. He negotiated a business model between the music companies, which was 99 cents for a download. And that's where you saw all of a sudden a billion take off. Why I think that Bitcoin took off, it benefited from all that development in the same way that Steve Jobs and all of us benefited prior to the iPod. But what Bitcoin did to hit that inflection point is Satoshi Yakamoto, whoever he or she or they are, wrote a white paper that included an unbelievable technology called blockchain. And he really was a genius. Did he get 100% of it right? No. So we're dealing with the energy load, the energy requirements to mine Bitcoin. But besides that, the underlying technology that he developed was just extraordinary. And irrespective of cryptocurrency, has huge amount of use cases in business and personally globally. And interestingly enough, your listeners may know this, but he actually saw the financial crisis in 2008, and he issued the first white paper on blockchain and this digital currency in November of 2008. And then when he mined the first Bitcoin, it was in January of 2009, and he 
tagged, they put in that the headlines of the UK paper, the English or the London paper about the exchequer, the, the central bank having all sorts of trouble. And so he made it really clear that he saw Bitcoin and blockchain as the solution, or I would say more broadly, a solution, a part of the solution to the global financial crisis that we saw in 2008 and 2009. He was really quite clairvoyant in that. And where I have to admit, this is the first time I'm hearing about this white paper. So can you provide a little bit more context on what this white paper was, what did it detail, and kind of like the history lesson on it? Yeah, and it became the actual norm. So any crypto coin of any size or magnitude or wanting to get broader, I mean, you and I, I teach a blockchain crypto course at Berkeley for exec ed for anybody who's, who doesn't even go to Berkeley. And we, as part of it, help you develop your own coin. So we help Paul mint a Paul coin or a Mar coin or a Paulina coin. And so you get really experienced doing that. Obviously, we don't write white papers, but if you are Tether or you are Solana or you are Bitcoin or you are Ethereum, you start out by writing a white paper. And that white paper says, what is this coin? What are the parameters? How is that trust built? How is it going to work? And so Satoshi Yakamoto did that in November of 2008. And then he put it out on a listserv of cryptographers because the underlying blockchain technology is really cryptography. It's really the technology that was developed for codes. And so he put it out. He got all sorts of people on the listserv, like you might do at Berkeley or Haas with a paper that you developed, lots of feedback. And then he did the first transaction the end of January. And he figured out a lot of stuff. He figured out that he was going to have to pay miners at the beginning because why would you two be interested in mining if you weren't going to get something? But he also knew that he should reward you a lot at the beginning and less and less so over time. He also said countries get out of whack and have their economy collapse and their currency collapse because they just print money. So he said there's only going to be 21 million coins. And I use he, I should say they or her. I mean, nobody quite knows, although we have some guesses these days. But there was just a lot of things that they put in this. So they put an anti-inflation. There's only going to be 21 coins ever minted. So somebody can't go crazy. Now we see with others, crypto coins, there isn't that limit. So the white paper really differentiates how you're going to mine it, what are the rewards, how it can be used, what are the rules of the road, and who controls it. Because the idea is to make it decentralized, but some of these coins aren't that decentralized. And so that white paper is super important to read, or at least read an abstract of it, with any investments that people might do, because it will tell you what are the risks that you're undertaking by investing or using this coin. So many directions and so many questions to ask. <laughs> so I'm coming back to stable coins. And I'm curious, through our accounting class, we had to do a presentation and we chose to do it on Tether. As you mentioned, Tether is supposed to be tied, tethered to a US dollar. So that means currently there's about 80 billion Tether in circulation. So what you would expect is that Tether, the company, is holding $80 billion of US dollar fiat. 
Looking at their balance sheet will show a very different story with investments all over the place, including loans where they're loaning out billions of Tether to other cryptocurrency exchanges, in addition to things that are more controversial, like holding commercial real estate paper from China. But I thought this was supposed to be pegged to a US dollar. And I have to also mention that Tether was indeed fined $41 million as they were found to not have the full reserves in place during 2017. And there was a lot of suspicion that Tether was doing something to inflate the price of Bitcoin. Just really curious to hear your thoughts on Tether, the stable coin, and what will happen to Tether once there's a CBDC, which opens up a whole other set of questions. So I would say, bingo, you have hit on the most important consideration that people need, whether they're doing it for personal reasons or investment reasons or business reasons, on a stable coin. A stable coin is supposed to have those as the reserves. Tether never, it's like magic. They sort of said, oh, whoa, whoa, look over here, look over here. But they wouldn't have an independent auditor. And to this day, they do not have an independent auditor. And so never, in most of ours estimation, were there ever $80 billion, or even when it was less, dollars or gold or something sitting in bank accounts someplace else. Because they have been outed and the regulators, again, we have regulation not to actually make our lives miserable, but to actually make our lives safer. And so the regulators went after them. And so now they published that, in fact, only a very a portion of it is held in, now they're saying a basket of currencies. They aren't even saying the U.S. dollar, even though the idea most people think is Tether is actually tethered to the U.S. dollar, which it is not. It's a basket of currencies, but because they want to earn more return, as you say, they have commercial paper and they've now admitted that they have a huge portion of those reserves in commercial paper. And what you have reserves for is, why was there a run on the bank in 29 and 30? Why were there people lining up to get their money? Is because there was no guarantee that that bank had it. As you know, local banks, we deposit our money and they turn around and lend it. And so in the 30s, the U.S. decided we need a federal deposit insurance corporation. We need to have average people have some trust in that local bank that if you go there, they'll actually have it. That's also why banks never close the day after Thanksgiving is they legally cannot close for more than three days at a time. And that's all grew out of the run on the banks in 1929 and 30. So fast forward to Tether coin or any stable coins. What you want, hopefully, when you're buying a cryptocurrency that's tethered, is you want to have the confidence that if you want to turn it back into U.S. dollars, that you can. And so the issue is, can you? So I'd say, take a hard look at the stable coin you're investing in, find out what the reserves are, and most importantly, are they audited? So one of the stable coins, it's more expensive to transact in, not surprising is from Gemini, the Winkle losses of the Facebook fame brothers who took their settlement with Facebook and bought Bitcoin and got into crypto and made themselves billionaires. But they have an exchange called Gemini that is regulated by the New York State Authority, Banking Authority, 
and they audit, I think, every month or every quarter, and they actually have U.S. dollars. So not all stable coins are created equal, and certainly the place to look is their reserves. So you had a second question about what happens when we begin to see fiat digital currency. And for those of you who are not macro or you don't remember, fiat is basically a national currency. So a U.S. dollar, a Canadian dollar, a pound sterling in the Brits, a Japanese yen, and the Chinese. So we've already seen China, interestingly enough, regulatorily didn't get it. Facebook, when they announced their Libra, which is a whole other podcast all by itself, and why they ultimately failed after two attempts at that. But they actually wrote a brilliant white paper. And the Chinese said, you know what? They've actually written a white paper that would make sense for us if we published digital yuan, a Chinese coin. And so they went ahead and did that. And so a lot of our eyes are looking on, will they require transactions be done in their digital coin? They've never been successful at making their fiat currency in China a reserve currency. People don't hold it the way that they hold euros or pound sterling or Japanese yen. And so they've sort of haven't been able to do that. The question is, will they be able to do it with their digital currency by forcing people who are using Tencent or Alibaba or transaction with China? So my friends who are much more schooled in geopolitics than I have some really interesting suggestions of how and when that's going to happen. But I fully expect that even the U.S. Federal Reserve will have a digital fiat currency at some point. I think they're being cautious. They're doing a lot of tests, which is what we want. We do not want to own it and have a collapse. And how is it going to interact with paper U.S. dollars, etc.? So I think they're working really hard on that. But if I was to polish my crystal ball, and after all, Paul and Paulina, it's only my crystal ball. So you may say five years from now, you were just dead wrong, Mara. But if I was to polish my crystal ball, I will predict that each of the reserve currencies will have a digital currency. I mean, it's why when I began to understand the powerfulness of blockchain and blockchain for good and crypto that I raised my hand five years ago and said, I want to create a course in exec ed on blockchain and crypto because I think it's going to be as important and as transformational and more than the internet. And people thought, oh, you're crazy, Mara. That's not the case. And certainly when we saw Bitcoin go, I call it the crypto winter from 10,000 to 3,000, then they know for sure I was nuts. But I said, no, 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 just wait. Look at the 1890s, how many, even in the rise of the Industrial Revolution, we saw a roller coaster. Look at Web 1.0. Look at how Barron's business magazine's got to be embarrassed that they said Amazon is a dot boom company and the boom and bust. And that was a mistake. So just as there was massive corrections in the early introduction of internet or the early introduction of our Industrial Revolution, we saw that in crypto with Bitcoin, and it will still remain volatile. I believe it will still remain more volatile than more regulated markets, but also returns will be better in the short run. 
A quick pause there too, since you mentioned the class that you teach, would you be able to give us a little bit of overview of that exact moment, like why you thought this is the time that we need to create this course? And then I know the space is always changing. So how do you teach a course on something that changes hour by hour, day by day? Right. That's a great question. So Five years ago, Berkeley Exec Ed, which is the non-degree programs and their profits go back to Haas, 100% of them do. And so they came to me and said, we want to develop some asynchronized online courses. Would you be interested in new venture finance? Which Pauline knows is my beloved course. I love to teach that. It was the obvious choice. Or blockchain and crypto. <laughs> and I raised my hand and I said, I'm going to do blockchain and crypto. And frankly, I did it for two reasons. And I would encourage everybody else to do. I knew a fair amount. I told you, I lived talking to central banks about accelerating mobile money, looking at KYCs, looking at discussing with natural banks and worldwide. So I knew a fair amount about that, but a little less about actual crypto mining and stuff. And so I thought, this is a great opportunity for all of us to go in the direction of things that we and to take courses or in the case of me to invent a course on something I knew a lot about. But I also, it was changing, as you said, on an hourly basis. So it forced me to stay super current. So I wrote about 135 pages, single space of content. I did a zillion videos and eight modules that they did up. And then what we have is we have four live sessions. The course goes for eight weeks. We have four live sessions. And literally, a former student of mine, Deva Duda Gant, who's fabulous, he has a crypto company, he raised $50 million in an initial coin offering. So I asked him to partner with me on this course. And literally at 11.30, the night before the live session that goes on at 8 a.m., we are finalizing exactly. And what we try to use those live sessions for is exactly what you're talking about. What is the very latest? So a couple hours ago, President Biden issued a crypto executive order. That's mm -hmm. exactly what happens in this space every day, every hour, 365 days of the year. So that's how we made it. We finally took the course offline for the beginning of this year. And we're going to reboot it in June because we're refilming and rewriting. There's been just enough fundamental change in the last three years that we're just doing all new content. So stay tuned for those who want to take it. We've had such an interesting group of people. We had a senator from Ireland. We had the CTO of Microsoft. I don't know if it was the CTO or one of the CTOs. We had people from PayPal and Bank of America. So people should not be embarrassed that they know what this is. But what a course does, whether you go on YouTube, whether you take the blockchain in Berkeley free courses, or whether you take our course, it just gives you this deeper understanding of like, what's the difference between blockchain and Bitcoin? What's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum or the new energy, more efficient ones like Solana or Cardano? and what matters. And the myth out there that somehow Bitcoin is anonymous, it is not anonymous, it is synonymous. That's why in the colonial pipeline and in the seizing that the federal government has done of Bitcoin, 
It's because your public address is like breadcrumbs. So once mm-hmm. they know my public address, they can find every place I've transaction and every place I've hid. So what I've always said to my treasury officials and mobile money and other people, that this is actually a much safer, much more trustworthy way to transact because it's all there set in, not literally, but figuratively in concrete. And we can decide. So my son-in-law imports liquor and he has this high-end rum. He had it go by ship from Jamaica to Florida. And then I think it flew to JFK and miraculously, sadly, 177 cases vanished. He has pictures from the customs person that that was done. But he says, where is blockchain when I need it in my supply chain? Because blockchain will tell you exactly who had chain of custody and they'll verify what the contents of that. So it's much less easy for things to fall off the back of a truck. Or in this case, where did 177 cases of high-end rum go? I'd like to know. Right. (laughs) That's some of the business applications that frankly have nothing to do with crypto. It's the powerfulness of the blockchain. Definitely. And I guess since it is just hot off the presses, would love your hot take on the latest administration's policy and executive order around crypto and around blockchain and where you see that coming to fruition over the next year. I know I'm asking you to break out your crystal ball again. So it literally just came off. And even though I knew it was coming, I'm always careful to only talk about something that really came out. Mm. But I think that it's a good thing that the federal government, so it's he's calling on the government to examine the risks and benefits of crypto. And he is really challenging both Treasury and the Federal Reserve to get involved. But I think that part of it will be seen, you know, he wants to really protect U.S. consumers, investors, and businesses, and that is a very good thing. We need to actually have some guardrails so the bad guys and the bad girls do not lead us dry in doing this. And they also are looking at ways in which they can protect U.S. global financial systems. And then do this anti-terrorist money laundering. So, for example, let's look at the Russia-Ukraine thing. A lot of aid has been raised by people donating crypto. That's fabulous. But many of the exchanges are transparent, and it's really good. But there's still a few exchanges that some of the bad folks in Russia are using to hide their assets, to transfer assets. You know, there's been this move about whether we'd seize assets of oligarchs. I'm not going to get into whether we should or not, but the fact of the matter is there's some dark exchanges for which some really nefarious bad stuff are going. So what he's doing is taking a 300-watt bulb and saying, we want consumers and businesses to be protected. We want illicit activity to be cracked down on, and we want U.S. and global financial systems to be stabilized. And where he's super smart is to say, at the U.S., we want to be a leader globally in this new digital crypto world. How this rolls out from an executive order 
to reality about how it's implemented, that's the devils and the details. But all I can tell you is in the last five years, both the Federal Reserve and Treasury are getting a lot smarter on this. But I would encourage people to continue to get involved because I don't know if you've covered Web3 at all, but a lot of discussion about who owns all our data and privacy, et cetera. And my belief is we can talk to Google, we can regulate Facebook, we can do this. But in many ways, the horses are out of the barn. In a Web 3.0, which is a combination of a crypto blockchain, internet, telecom future, that's the opportunity. That's where technology is moving. It was sort of like we could focus on mainframes and PCs, but when the internet came along, that was the place to focus. So I'd say Web3, which is the new area, that's where we should have these discussions about who does on our data. Do we own it? Can we monetize it? Can we decide who has it or not? So I think getting the rules right for Web 3.0 that includes the new internet, but most importantly includes blockchain and crypto, I think that will be the shot heard around the world. And it's not that there isn't other regulatory places in Switzerland, in Dubai, other places that are looking, that we still are a major player globally. And so I'm thrilled to have the president stand up, articulate these things that are really important for this innovation to be stable and to be useful, and also say, we're going to take a global leadership role in this. And I just wanted to chime in and give some context about at least one pro and one con on these central bank digital currencies. So as we know, China already released their digital yuan. And in China, there's a lot of video surveillance. So there can be a use case that somebody is jaywalking on the streets of China. The video picks it up and that person's identified and fined instantaneously. So even before you get home, as soon as you do the crime, the video catches you and you're fined. So some people can say, hey, that's an invasion of privacy. So I just want to throw that one out. And there's another interesting use case about using these CBDCs to stimulate the economy. Like with COVID, they printed a lot of money and distributed checks to the Americans. But then you have a percentage of how much you're going to consume from that savings. So with CBDC, you can actually have the money expire within 30 days. So if you don't use it within that 30 days, then it just goes to zero. So then you get people, instead of saving the cash, they can actually go and incentivize to use it quickly, which would then have the intended economic effects. So these could be really big changes to the economy. And we'd just be interested to hear your take. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the question of surveillance is huge. With or without blockchain, with or without crypto, I watch with much humbleness, but also fear about the kind of surveillance and the kind of social capital indexes that China's using to decide if we're good citizens or bad citizens. London has those cameras all over. I like the fact that I can sometimes beat that meter maid. <laughs> yeah. I think that's partly why the U.S. government is being careful about this. But yeah, the privacy issue of now we're going to know where all these dollars are spent because the flip side of knowing what bad actors are and what they're doing, they can also know what we're doing. So that's why I think we got to get the rules of this road right. 
got to embrace this new technology enthusiastically, but we got to not have our blinders on. What we woulda, coulda, shoulda known at the launch of Web 2.0 that might not find us here today with adolescent girls being fed a lot of stuff on body image and, and contributing to unprecedented depression and hikes and suicide. I think we have to be vigilant about doing exactly what you just did, Paul. Here's the pluses and here's the bad cases. I teach a DC immersion course for EMBAs, and I have a morning where I make them go to either the African American Museum, the American Indian Museum, or the Holocaust Museum. And the unit is called When Government Becomes a Force for Evil. And so I think in moving forward with blockchain and with crypto, we have got to not be conspiratorial, not say, government is evil and absolutely no government is good government. I say, oh, you don't want air traffic controllers? You don't want food safety people? So I'm not one coming here saying government is bad, but I am saying government can be bad. So let's make sure as we are generating and thinking through the powerfulness, the innovation, the opportunities that crypto and blockchain have, that we're also asking, where could this go wrong? And what do we need to do about that? Thank you, Roy. I think we've covered so many different topics. And I think general statement from me is that even just in listening to you talk, I feel like I've been able to understand the space more and where we think it will go over the next 30, 60, 90, 100, 200 days. So I appreciate your perspective and the ways that you approach it. And I think obviously being a great lecturer and teacher, boiling it down easily in ways and bite-sized to understand are great. As we think about wrapping our time with you today, where do you see the space going? It's a very general question, and I feel like I've asked this in different ways with you already, but what are your three big bets that you see blockchain or crypto taking on this year? Just want to add to see if your perspective on the metaverse and if the metaverse and NFT is this the future or is this just a fad? Okay. And I can particularly speak to NFTs. Metaverse, I think, is a lot of different things. So three big trends. Blockchain is here to stay and you will increasingly see it in supply chains. It will be the de facto. You know, we used to have spreadsheets and then we had enterprise systems and then we saw connected, you know, where Procter & Gamble and Walmart systems were completely transparent. So as soon as I bought Tide, Procter & Gamble would know that they needed to get that back on the shelf at Walmart. So I think that you will increasingly see blockchain be in supply chains in a very, very significant way. Two is I think that while we will continue to see new use cases for crypto and even with the fact that I don't expect on Bitcoin in particular that we will see any less energy use in the mining and execution of it. We are already seeing new examples of it. But for the moment, I think Bitcoin is to crypto what the US dollar is to global financial markets. Meaning, yes, its share will go down. Ethereum's taken a bunch of it. 
But I think Ethereum and Bitcoin will still for a while, not forever, but for a while be the biggest use cases in the crypto space. That doesn't mean that the most money can be made in those because if you bought Solana when it was two cents, you made a boatload of money. So I'm not saying that there aren't cryptos that are going to come out. And then let's talk about the NFTs in just a minute. I happen to believe that the reason why Bitcoin or cryptos in general and blockchain have been here to stay for the last decade or more is because they absolutely solve a super difficult and annoying problem in business and in our personal lives. And if they didn't, they would have gone the way of any of the other products that are a nice to have, but not a must have. The reason why I put NFTs in that is let's go back to this example I used of Napster teaching us how to download music before iPods and nobody got rewarded for it. The way of protecting creativity, the way of rewarding innovators was to be able to have a patent or a trademark or any number of those sort of ways, but those don't work in a digital world. So talk to any great photographers. I mean, they like to blow their brains out on how many times they see their photographs and they don't get any usage fee for that. So the marketplace has been begging for a digital kind of IP, and that's really what NFTs are. NFTs are the answer to the question of how do we create a new intellectual property protection scheme? Now, does that mean that there are things that are copyrighted that shouldn't be copyrighted? Are there NFTs? I mean, Robert Iger, I'm not saying he's right, but the former head of Disney said, yeah, I want an open sea, the big exchange on NFTs. And I saw a lot of our intellectual property has been made into NFTs. So are we at the early phase of it? Yes. Is Beppel stuff worth 60 million or one piece 72? Well, I don't know. When I looked at that new piece that got auctioned off, it was a breathtaking piece of art. So is Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup can? He sold it originally for 50 bucks and it's now in the millions. So on the art world in particular, it will sort itself out. Just because it's an NFT doesn't mean it's going to be worth a lot. But just as Bruce Springsteen just sold his, uh, as did Bob Dylan, sold his uh, publishing rights for a gazillion dollars, they got a lot more money than my music publishing rights if I was to sell them. So I think there still will be a marketplace that will show up or not. But I am super excited about one aspect of NFTs that you do not see in the more offline or non-digital protection. And that is the residual rights or royalty. So what is emerging is, let's say you're a band or you're songwriters, Paul and Paulina, that's a pretty good mix. And you <laughs> do an incredible song. We have rights now every time that that's played. We can argue about Spotify, et cetera, whether you would get played enough. But if you made a sculpture and you sold it when you're a starving artist for a fraction of what it's worth, you kick yourself. Why didn't I get the $10 million it's worth today? 
And the way NFTs are being, a lot of them are being set up is you'll get a residual. So you'll sell it for 50 bucks, but you'll get 10% of every time it's resold. That's a hell of an annuity for a creator or an innovator. So to conclude, I think blockchain, you'll see continued mass adoption, but you will particularly see acceleration in financial services, but also supply chains. The second crypto that still the big players in the room will be Ethereum and Bitcoin for the foreseeable future, but we'll continue to see massive innovation and over time, those shares. And then NFTs are super exciting. Are there a lot of things that are worth the paper that they're written on or the bits and bytes that the, the NFT? Yes, but they're here to stay because they solve a very specific and important problem in business and in commerce. And I'm excited about creators and innovators in that space. I 100% agree. And before we let you go, the last couple of questions I have for you is just to share a little bit more about Mora outside the classroom. So I think last time I saw you were heading out to support your husband in a tennis tournament. He made it to USDA, which is so exciting. So what are your hobbies? What do you like to do outside of class when you're not jet setting around the world? Uh, well, I have two things. One, I have some brand new little munchkins. So I have some uh, little teeny grandkids. And so Aww. I have a total blast with them. I love to kayak, particularly to see kayak. And then because my raison d'etre is to have the biggest impact I can have for one person in a lifetime, I do a lot of work on global innovation. So I'm the treasurer of the Eastern Congo Initiative that Ben Affleck founded. And so we're pioneering social enterprises in some of the hardest places to do business and to live. And I'm working with a woman in South Africa that has selling the only female-owned carbon credits in the humanitarian space, which is called Wonder Bag. It's a, think about it as a non-electric slow cooker. She just announced a deal with Electricity de France and has done it with one of the largest energy companies in South Africa. And getting her factories to remain open during COVID and during the crisis. I helped uh, start a public charter school for young women in the inner city of Baltimore. I just stepped down as the founding vice chair that I'm just super proud of. We have 450 girls and young women, 6th through 12th grade. Our aspirations when we started this was audacious. It was to get every one of them graduated and accepted to college and been successful. 99% or 97% are African-American coming from low-resource families. And then the last thing I do, which is what I expect to spend a bulk of the next decade on, is I'm desperately excited about this sort of man on the moon project, which is how do we make America look like America in terms of business ownership and entrepreneurship by ethnicity and gender. So that when we look around, it really reflects the communities in which we operate. If we did that, we'd have 2 million more businesses in the US, we'd have 20 million more Americans, let alone others globally employed, and we'd increase our GDP by 20%. So those are a few of the things outside of the classroom that light my fire and keep me busy and inspire me. 
I don't know how you have time for any of it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the famous uh, Dustin Hoffman movie called The Graduate. You know, the guy was telling him he's graduating from college, just plastics. One word is plastics. And what I tell myself and I tell my entrepreneurs at Hawes is I said, sleep, sleep. <laughs> so that's the thing I'm trying to figure out how to get better at it. So I don't get Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. have a heart attack while I do this. But I feel certainly excited to be here with the two of you. Congratulations on doing this. What a fabulous resource and you're great interviewers. And it's just one of the things that makes being at Haas super special. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your experiences, for sharing all the work that you're doing outside of Haas to truly show the impact you can have on campus, off campus and on the world and how the world looks around us. Thank you so much, Professor O'Neill. Really inspired listening to you speak. You'll see more of me as I will uh, be attending some of your classes, I'm sure. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you would need to come back to do a full episode on Libra. So we're going to hold you to it because it's recorded. That is so <laughs> interesting. The other thing I tell you is go look at the story of Katie Hahn. It was a federal prosecutor and now she's one of the most badass VC investors of all time. When she was a federal prosecutor, she put the guy, they figured out along with the FBI who founded uh, Silk Road and put him behind jail. But what she also figured out, because I told you Bitcoin is synonymous, not anonymous, she figured out that one of the FBI agents and one of the Secret Service guys thought no one would notice if they took a little of that illicit Bitcoin and put it into their account. And she busted them and sent them to prison too. American Greed did a piece on it, but people can look it up. So I just think there's a lot of interesting stories. I read mostly nonfiction and people say, why don't you read fiction? I said, because really life is stranger than fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and that's true of the crypto and blockchain play. So anyways, to be continued. I love it. Well, thank you again so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Around the Block at Haas. If you're interested in a specific topic or know someone passionate about blockchain, please email us at haaspodcasts, with an S, at berkeley.edu. Until next time, this is Paul. And this is Paulina, and we'll see you around the block. <laughs>